Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. How are you? I'm well. And you? I'm well. I'm fantastic. Wow. Uh, yeah. It is a Tuesday. We are recording on a Tuesday. Correct. The week, should I date the ourselves? Week the week before Thanksgiving. Yeah. All right. There's plenty to be thankful for, but we'll save that for another podcast. Year is 2022. The year is posterity's sake. Right. That's right. All right. We have a special guest today. We have John Hurley. John is the founder of Hurley Tax Law, a tax law firm that represents individuals and entities in all areas of international tax, that is U.S. inbound and outbound transactions, but also tax audits, appeals, litigation, tax planning. He's got a fascinating career during his 20-year career. He has represented and advised multiple Fortune 500 companies on a wire raid of sophisticated tax issues. And in fact, he was part of the in-house tax department's at some of the world's largest multinational corporations, including Tyco International, U.S., Inc., Halliburton Corporation, and Rider System, Inc., to just to name a few. He has a JD in law from FSU and a master's in tax from, and with a certification in international tax from UM. So he's uh, educated in Florida. Welcome. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Welcome, John. We're happy to have you. So you've spent a lot of time in school in Florida, but you're not from Florida. No, actually, I grew up in a a suburb of Chicago called Naperville. Okay. And so I left there for college back in 1993 and came down to Florida. And never left. And only left once for a brief spell for a job, but missed it so much that I'm back again. And now you started out, I, I didn't mention this in your intro, you started out in a law firm working almost exclusively for one of the big companies, and then you went in-house. Tell us about that transition. Or Yeah, sure. So I was a young lawyer in Boca Raton and started with a firm there. And the firm did different areas of law, but one of the concentrations was tax. And there was a large multinational company there in Boca that needed help. So I was able to, for over a year, be outside counsel for them on state and local income and franchise tax audits representing them before the Department of Revenue and similar tax agencies throughout the U.S. So I did that for about a year, and then they asked me actually to come in-house and be associate tax counsel and handle both audits and appeals exclusively for them. So I went ahead and jumped on board with them and stayed with them for many, many years. How did you come to the tax practice, right? Did you have an accounting background? Did you study it in undergrad, in college? I really didn't. Mm -hmm. I think what it was is that I had a desire, I think from the beginning, eventually to be Mm in-house, whether that was in the capacity of tax or mergers and acquisitions. I think, you know, when I was a young lawyer, I wasn't sure just yet. However, it's sort of destiny and it fell in my lap. And at that point, I loved tax and uh, just kept running with it ever since. That's the sound bite, I, I think, love of the tax. podcast. I was <laughs> right. going to say, yeah. I love tax. You have that. That's a bumper sticker on your car, right? Is that uh, I love tax? <laughs> yes, um, exactly. You and every accountant out there. Right? Exactly. There you awesome. go. But so did you get your LLM straight through? Did you go straight from law school and get your LLM? Or did you come? Did that come later? It came later. Uh, I think what it was for me was as I started to practice, tax for the large corporation, I realized there were just so many nuances in the tax world. And in order to really get a good grasp 
of all of the concepts, I needed to have more formal education. So I felt getting an LLM in taxation would give me that bench strength. Mm. And uh, I definitely don't regret that. I think that it was a very good program at UM. And I think to this day, you know, I still refer back on some of those outlines. Does your practice go through transactional all the way to litigation or do you have a specific focus? My main focus is on the tax controversy. So that's uh, both audits as well as appeals, and that can be tax litigation as well. Mm -hmm. And then also I can do the tax planning. A lot of it is ancillary to some of the audit issues that you see come up to help resolve those. But most certainly, you know, based on my background uh, with the corporations, I did have many years of true tax planning as well as M&A due diligence on the tax side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from time to time, I do get those technical questions that need research or restructurings that I can help look at. On the tax planning side? On the tax planning side. Is that for companies, for individuals? I've had requests both for on the individual side Mm -hmm. on, you know, it's more tax technical memos in that situation, usually transactional based, as well as looking at it for corporations. So I've had both. And both U.S. and international as well. So at this point, for my practice itself, it's been more domestic. Okay. With that said, my background, I was actually, for about a year, I headed up for another company, their international tax group. So that is an area that I'm very familiar with as well. And so you made the transition. You went law firm, in-house, and then you did a bunch of in-house gigs, and then now law firm. Where's the grass greenest? That is a good question. (laughs) I'm, I'm about seven months into my practice. And I'm enjoying it, uh, wearing all the different hats that it comes with. So I think it's one of those things where it's all relative. I think there's benefits and detriments to each area, uh, but I love what I'm doing right now. I think you said you originally, you always thought you wanted to be an in-house or a corporate type person. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. And so I did that for almost 20 years. And while I was doing that, I always thought, you know, I didn't give private practice that much of a chance. I was only there about a year And what would it be like to have my own firm and and sort of run things myself? And so that's why I'm doing this now. I I find it very interesting and and liberating in some ways to be able to have your own practice and and sort of figure out your day-to-day. Yeah. Well, you're, well, the, on the one hand, you're your own boss, but on the other hand, you're also your own employee. <laughs> you're, uh, you're kind of, you're wearing mul- multiple hats, as you said. So are, do you have other attorneys that work for you? Is, At this point, I'm a, a solo practice. Mm-hmm. Good for you. Good for you. Well, you may need more. We'll get into the topic now, right? We all have seen the budget, the new budget, the increased enforcement by the IRS or the intention to increase enforcement by the IRS and hiring agents and, and all of that. 80,000, um, right? 80,000. Thousand is that right? Uh, the, 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 that was the original. Uh, number. Uh, yeah, yeah the talking right. points about eighty-seven thousand right. is what you hear yeah. out there. Yeah, but yeah. What, so what is the reality behind what you're seeing today, and then sort of any impacts that you have seen thus far? I think it's going to be one where, and so yes, correct. There's about almost forty-six billion that was allocated specifically to tax enforcement, and so now the question uh, that's being discussed out in public, as well as I'm sure with the IRS internally, is you know how to use those funds. And so, yes, I agree that you will see more headcount hired, uh, whether that's really 87,000 or not. I think that's, that's something that's yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. The IRS is looking at it currently and has until April of 2023 to sort of come out with how they want to allocate those specific funds for mm-hmm. enforcement. Mm-hmm. This is over a 10-year horizon. Right. So I don't think it's something where necessarily on day one, you're going to see that money spent and all of a sudden a huge influx of audits. 
With that said, I do definitely believe that there will be a push for hiring additional headcount. That's going to be both in the area of IRS auditors, examiners, as well as criminal investigators. But it will also include things, I believe, like IT and call service reps. And so, you know, the hope is that if the money is properly allocated and used efficiently, perhaps it makes taxpayers' life a little easier. Because when they make that phone call to the IRS, somebody answers and maybe can get back to them with an answer to their question. And there's more efficiencies internally as they work on their IT and they're able to bring, you know, modernize the way that they're doing things. So I think that's the benefit. But yes, I do believe too that there will certainly be an increase in headcount on the true enforcement side. And so that means uh, more audits and I think more activity, not only at the audit level, but that means for those taxpayers that believe there's a dispute as to their audit, then there will also be more activity at the appeals level. So efficiency at the IRS would be, I mean, let's not raise the bar too high. So from what I'm hearing from you, it's going to be some time before we see the public or even you and your practice would see any impact of this new sort of budget and focus at the IRS level. I believe so. I think even where they do hire these new agents, they got to train them up. So that takes time as well. So I believe that you'll see, you know, over the next year or two, maybe you'll start to see more activity with uh, ads where they're hiring, you know, within the IRS, Mm -hmm. come apply. But the actual boots on the ground and implementation of that, you know, that will come slowly after that as well. Right. But And that department had been thinned out too, right? So it's not, they've always been understaffed, but, you know, more so in recent years. Right. Agreed. Over, let's say, the last decade, they've done less investment, not more. Right. And you've had an attrition with auditors that are just simply retiring. They're meeting that age and, and they want to retire. Right. And so they weren't necessarily backfilling all of yeah. that headcount. Yeah, so you when you replenish, you got to replenish. And when you think of that 87,000 number that people throw out there, but then you have to do the math and say, yeah, but how many agents have been leaving? the right, force and right, will leave right, the right. force. What's the net gain at yeah, the end exactly. of the day? And how many, like you said, what's the allocation of those 80, 87,000 to enforcement versus call center versus other areas? And will that even be an accurate number at the right. end of the day? Right. Nobody knows yet. Well, and, and look, I mean, there's more on their plate too with the PPP issues, with other pandemic lending, if you will, or, or government surplus. I think government surplus. Government programs, aid, government right. programs, where the IRS has been involved and that's putting more of a burden on the current agents that are there. Right. Yes. And the training of the new agents, that's going to have to be by seasoned agents as well. So now they got to do double duty doing their audits plus training up a new staff. Right. I recall hearing, I don't, I can't remember when or from who I heard this. There was some statistic that it was something like for every dollar spent at the IRS, they generate, they net $6. It's a very profitable department, if you will, of the U.S. government. There's reports that are out there that they actually have to account for. I'm not sure exactly if the $6 is accurate, but to your point, there is a return on the investment and they report that out, the IRS. And I guess last question on this area, but it's, I mean, is it going to be equally sort of focused on individuals and corporations or, you know, the corporations are the ones that grab the headlines, right? Like big corporations that aren't paying taxes and that there's all these loopholes and things like that. I think that again is one that we're going to have to wait to see what Mm -hmm. the trend is. So I would say stay tuned and look for that April date as to what the IRS actually comes out with as Mm -hmm. to how they want to allocate. Mm -hmm. And then it's a matter of just seeing the trends as the audits actually start to kick up and you start to see the controversy. Where are 
where is the focus? But I understand what you're saying because logically, some may argue that you know the bigger bang for the buck is, would be to look at you know some of the larger revenue generators mm-hmm. and focus there. So that's probably speculation at this point. I think we just have to wait and see what the IRS does as far as strategy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because there's so many segments of the population. There's, I don't think anyone's pro-tax, you know, but there's a lot of anti, you know, people who want, you know, less and lower taxation. But I think this idea of strengthening the IRS is not necessarily contrary to that idea of lower or less taxation or anything like that. If you're going to have a tax system, you'd think that everyone would be in favor of a of a strong, well-employed, you know, well-equipped IRS. Either have a system or don't have a system. Or if you're going to have one, you shouldn't have a one that's where people have to pay taxes, but there aren't really auditors or analysts to review them efficiently, effectively respond to them. You know, does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, it does. And I would say it's also clarity that by having a well-trained IRS that can help in those situations with taxpayers that have questions that call into the call center, that go to the advocacy group, to be able to have that expertise and that resource so that you can make sure that you're a good citizen and that you're paying your proper Right. tax that's due. Sometimes it's just confusing, right? right? What the laws are and understanding them. And so not everybody has that luxury of being able to hire an attorney just to help them file their return. Yeah. Yeah. And I would think that most Americans, I think, would say they don't mind paying a fair tax, but they want to make sure that others are doing the same, right? Right. That's right. And this would further that, right? <laughs> well, that's the hope. this is the idea is that <laughs> I'm paying my tax. Everyone assumes that I'm the only, that they're the only one right. paying taxes. No right. one else is. And right. so- this would be, you know, this whole idea of demonizing the IRS it just never makes sense to me, you know? I find them, I've, I've worked with them for years, and I can say that they're professionals. And just like you and I, you know, they have a job to do, and they're educated in what they do. And so I think it's just a matter of if you are respectful to them, then most of the times they'll be respectful back. And so it's just having that professionalism and trying to come right. to the right answer. Right. I think that gets you really far. Yeah. Do you see any movement towards simplifying the tax code? I know there were for years, right? There, that's also political talking points. People throw it out there. The what was it? The single page return and and all of that. I mean, that to me would may help. Yeah, but that'd right? be terrible for John's business. Well, no, I, I know that. <laughs> no, but there there's still going to be issues. Like even if it's simplified, there's still going to be right, issues. Yeah. But it seems like, and I understand the ebb and flow. I understand that there's going to be adaptation year after year with new business, new models, things like that. But it seems to me it is really, it's gotten to the point where it is so overly complicated. Agreed. And I think you can even go back, and I'll go back to my LLM days, which you learn in the LLM program, right? Mm-hmm. Is you go back to 1986 with Reagan, mm-hmm. when that was one of the most major changes, right, to the mm-hmm. code in a long time. And the idea there was to simplify it. And it was simplified. However, you go from there to today, you have literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of changes that have occurred over that time frame. Yeah. And so the question kind of becomes, and this is more philosophical or policy driven, you know, what is the point of the IRS and the tax code? Is it just to collect and generate revenue for services? Or is it also to offer certain benefits to mm. the taxpayers? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And so that's what happens. And incentivize behavior. Incentivize right. behavior. A good example of that, the research credit. 
Right. Right. The idea of we want innovation in the United States. So let's have a research credit that we're doing dollar for dollar on, on new research, you know, that's incremental to what's been done in the past. So the idea of that research credit is to try to generate innovation in the mm. U.S. So it's things like that. But then you have to multiply that by all the different interests that are out right, there. Yeah. And that's where you end up with thousands and thousands of changes over time and the complications. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I get that challenge. That's hard because the innovation on the business side and on the taxpayer side creates all these complications on the tax side. And typically, right, the changes to the tax code, you know, clo- we, you know, you hear the talking points, oh, we're closing, closing this loophole yeah. or closing that loophole. And it's really doesn't change or simplify anything. It may just sort of pick off one particular area that is a great talking point for that political cycle. Yes. Yes. And again, it comes down to what is the point of the code and the IRS? Is it to influence sort of the market a little bit Uh by having incentives? Or is it to say, no, the government shouldn't influence the market and therefore the code should just be black and white and they're just collecting revenue and using them for services. Well, what, I mean, in the industry, I mean, what do you think or what what was the sort of the history <laughs> now, of it? If you know, I mean, if you don't know, I mean, the history of we, like why they created the IRS. We should have right? uh, we should have told you to bring your outline. Well, really. There you I go. Mean, I'm going to have to pull out your material. See no, if I, I blow the dust off. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, if you know or if you, you know, given you're in that industry, I mean, like you said, what is the purpose of the IRS? Like, why was it created? And now what, you know, what's was, the focus now? What's it become? Purpose? Just my opinion. My opinion is that, you know, the IRS is there to ensure proper compliance with the laws. And so in doing that, and that goes back to the whole budget issue now of, okay, now they have this budget. How are they going to use it? Because they can meet that need, right? Mm -hmm. By, you know, bringing in and educating the auditors and uh, people at the call center. So when taxpayers are calling, they can help those taxpayers to properly comply. So, you know, their job is to make sure there's proper compliance, whether that's up front through phone calls because the taxpayer is inquiring before they file return to do the right thing, or whether it's during an audit and they're looking at it and they're also looking at it for accuracies, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes it's just an honest error. You know, it could be computational. Sure. And so that's really, at least in my opinion, that's the purpose of the IRS is just to ensure proper compliance with the rules. Yeah, enforcement, right? Enforcement mm-hmm. of the code. Right. Yeah. That they didn't write. No. Right. I'm just saying, let's, it's their job to enforce this code that was, you know, drafted by thousands of <laughs> Congress people over decades. And, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. uh, crazy. So what other trends, if any, are you seeing currently in your practice? We talked about what may happen in the future as a result of some of the new budget allocation. But what are you seeing now in terms of tax enforcement, tax controversy, things like that? I think right now... The tax enforcement is still at a level that it has been in the more recent past, Mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, we haven't seen those funds necessarily take hold yet. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I think that they are, meaning the IRS, starting to, from what I can see, fill certain jobs. I do see some activity there where they are putting jobs out there for individuals to apply for. So that tells me that, you know, very soon you will probably see that uptick. Mm -hmm. Now, it will take more time before I think it's going to be substantial compared to where it is today. But I think you will start to slowly see that uptick. So right now, I think it's still that sort of uh, what it was prior to the uh, new budget. And if I'm a prospective client listening to the podcast and I say, okay, I get a letter from the IRS, do I call my accountant or do I call a tax lawyer? Call John now. Operators are standing by. There you go. (laughs) 
I think it's a personal decision. Mm -hmm. I think that when you're dealing with, it really depends on what their issue is, whether it's truly a legal issue, Mm -hmm. which may require a lawyer. For example, if they had to take and litigate it Mm -hmm. in court, Mm -hmm. then you're going to want an attorney. Sure. However, there are certain levels where you have choices. You can use tax professionals at an audit level or even during some of the administrative process. And so really it just, it's one of those questions that the taxpayer has to feel comfortable with. You know, are they looking, and it might depend on their issue as well. Is their issue more computational and more about the accounting side of it? Or is their issue more legal? Right. uh, Where they, they feel comfortable having a lawyer looking at that for them. I will say, you know, as we kind of come through this, I'll call it the calm before you see more activity. The question also becomes, okay, well, what should the taxpayer do now with regard to future tax years, knowing that maybe there will be more audits? Mm -hmm. And my my answer is, think about being audit ready, meaning right now you're getting ready to file tax returns. Not today. I just mean in, in the near future, you'll be filing tax returns that won't be audited for potentially a few years. Think about the positions you're taking in those returns. If you feel that you have some positions that are sensitive, meaning that they're shades of gray, you know, mm-hmm. the IRS could take a different position. Those are ones you want to look at more closely today. And you might want to gather up the proper documentation to be able to support that if you were to be audited. Mm-hmm. And you may even look at it and say, you know what, I think I'd rather have an attorney look at this if the transaction's big enough, because I'm going to take a position here mm-hmm. and it could be worth some money later. And so I'd rather have a lawyer look at it now and, and perhaps analyze it and even do a technical memo. So that way, three years from now, when I forget exactly why I took that position, I have a beautiful memo that I can look at. And then when the IRS comes in, I have my positions. So that's an interesting point. Sorry to pick up on that for a second. That's an interesting point. That is the increased enforcement. One would think, well, the budget's going to come into play and and there may be increased enforcement three years from now. But that three years from now, they may look back three years. And so the returns you're filing today may be impacted by this increased enforcement. Correct. Okay. So better to be prepared today Mm -hmm. than have to worry about it three years from now. Right. But that's advice, but the advice you gave to the prior question, which I thought was really sound and thorough, I would imagine is advice you've given throughout your practice, whether or not there's a change coming or not, you know, always be audit ready, essentially, right? If you're taking a position that's gray, to use your phrasing, then you should be ready to answer the questions later. But the key is prepare for answers three years from now, three, four, five years from now, whatever that period is. That's correct. And I even use terms like audit file. So you want to be audit ready right. by creating an audit file now. Yeah. So that's not only those technical positions where you analyze it and have that memo about the law and your facts and why it's appropriate, but also the documentation. Right. How many times does that happen, right? Three years from now, you're going, gosh, you know, I used to have that document, but I don't know where it is. And now the IRS is asking for it and they need it in whatever, 30 days. Hmm. And it might not just be one document. It might be 10, 15, 20 documents. And so if you gather those documents now, put them in a file that supports your tax return, plus those technical memos, you're pretty much ready. When the IRS comes in, you don't have to sweat the fact that they give you an information document request and say they want something hypothetically within 30 days. Right. You're like, okay, I've got that. Right. Yeah. That's the first time I've heard the answer because I've, I've asked this question, the same question Brett asked about when is it a CPA and when is it a tax attorney? And Your answer, if it's a calculation, it's a CPA. And if there's a legal issue, it's a tax attorney. I think the the calculation side makes perfect sense. The legal issue, I'm not sure that most taxpayers would know. 
I guess the question is if it's an interpretive question of whether or not something you did qualifies for some treatment under the tax code. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, and, yeah. And I would say also, to be fair on it, tax professionals, whether you're lawyers or CPAs, they also are considered capable of answering tax questions. Right. So most certainly, if the taxpayer is comfortable with their CPA and, and feels they have the analytical skills they need, yeah. that's great. Then that's their choice, whether right. they want to use them or not. Yeah. But to your point, you know, from my perspective as a tax attorney, I think that's where the bigger bang for the buck is. If you if you bring in the lawyer with regard to very tax technical questions, they're able to help answer those and right. also doing it litigated minded. Yeah. That I'm giving you an answer today, but I'm giving that answer with the idea that if this were to be audited and litigated later, you know, where, where should we went, take right. it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I would imagine I imagine a lot of very few taxpayers, individuals or companies are aware of that, you know, that nuance. I'm not sure they know that the position that they're taking is gray, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, that they tend to rely on their CPA as a general proposition. And so, but I think the idea of getting someone like you involved makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine it's better to get you involved on the front end rather than, you know, in response to some IRS action. Completely agree. I think that way, if it is a tax-sensitive position from the very beginning, we can properly position that. So what percentage of your clients, just ballpark, you know, ballpark, come from taxpayers themselves versus CPAs? I imagine a lot of CPAs refer clients to you, but sometimes the CPA is keeping it themselves and the client comes to you because they're not comfortable with the CPA or? I think I've seen both individuals that I've been able to personally meet and help them. And also I would say CPAs are actually a great source for me. And a lot of times it's, you know, the CPA may have, and it's specific ones, right? Everybody's different, but a lot of them will say, you know what, this is kind of my lane. I like to do whatever it is. Let's say uh, I like to do compliance. I like to fill out the returns. But when it comes to the controversy, you know, I'd rather pass that along to somebody who kind of focuses on that area. Right. So you'll see that type of synergy. And then some CPAs may feel uh, comfortable doing both, that they can, you know, file the return and, and they feel comfortable also in their practice handling, you know, audits and so forth. So it really depends. But I would say a lot of my business I do see coming from referrals, whether it's other lawyers or CPA firms. For um, law students that are out there that tax is nowhere on their radar, why should they? Should they take a tax class? Should they come try to be tax lawyers? What is your, do you have advice for young lawyers thinking about what, how to, where to practice? I do. I think, and I'm going to be a little biased since I am in the tax area. You should be. Exactly. <laughs> as I chose it. I enjoy tax because I think with tax, unlike certain other areas of law, perhaps, it's an area where you do have those synergies. It's not just, it's multidisciplinary. So it's not only law, it's also, you know, dealing with accountants, it's dealing with economists, it's tax sort of impacts everything. And so if you want an area of practice that requires you to use all different parts of your brain, I think it's one of those interesting areas where you're really, you have to understand a lot of different things from business to finance to tax to really have a good understanding of it. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not unlike kind of what we do in terms of bankruptcy, right? Right. I mean, there's a lot of different areas, disciplines that are rolled up into a bankruptcy. So you get to see all those different areas as well. Some litigation, some transactional, you deal with tax issues, you deal with, you know, a number of different issues. It could be an IP issue, for example, too. So it's super interesting. Yeah. 
And they're both code based. Yeah. So that's right. I, you know, I always I kind of like the confines of a code. It's a comfortable home. You know, you you have a place to start. You know, there are some guidelines in a book, right? That's right. If you have a that's book. right. That's right. And I'm not sure, and, and you guys are are the experts on that with the bankruptcy code, but I know with the Internal Revenue Code, what's interesting too is it starts with the code and then you have all these treasury regulations that come under it. Mm. And so it's sort of these layers. And then from there you have, you know, technical memos and all sorts of things uh, for secondary sources. So what are the treasury regulations in the context of the code? Are they, what are they? So really that the code is what Congress has codified right. as being the law. Right. And then what happens from there is the IRS then has, uh, when permitted by Congress, has the ability to interpret that statute. And so the IRS will then come out with its guidance under what they call treasury regulations. Mm. And so that is the IRS's interpretation of the rules as they you know, follow the code. And obviously they should follow what is required by Congress and set in the statute. But that's a lot of times where you get your controversy too, because that then it becomes a question of whether it's the treasury regulations or some of the secondary sources that maybe the IRS comes out with is their interpretation of those regs as well, like mm-hmm. a technical advice memorandum and other things that, that are used. And so then it becomes more of when does it become an interpretation versus that is what the code was meant to do. Mm, and that's, that's where your shades of gray come in. Yeah, that's super interesting. Because yeah. like when you, if you walk into a tax court, right, are they, let's say the IRS says, no, the regula- our regulation says this, our interpretation is this, but a court isn't bound by that. Right, right. That, that's where the litigation comes in and that's right. where it's got right. at some point go up, maybe to the judiciary and, right. and decide whether those regulations are consistent with Congress's intent, yeah. if you will, in, in wow. the statute. It's like having an adversary. You have the same adversary every time. Right. And your adversary publishes their positions and says, here's how we interpret it. <laughs> and right. if you want to disagree with us, then take us to court. Right. They're, so then they're not inviting that, but that's so then are they moving right into a different area other than enforcement by coming out with these this is how we well, interpret them. But they do that for your benefit too, right? right? For the taxpayer benefit. I, and I think that goes back to the point, like you said before, right. what is the IRS there for? Right. And the idea that there should be transparency mm-hmm. because the taxpayer needs to know what the rules are right. in order to be able to follow them. Sure. And so I think it is intentional, right? That the IRS is saying, okay, well, here's how we are viewing that statute, how we're interpreting. These are our rules. Mm-hmm. Here's how we see it. Mm-hmm. What happens, unfortunately, a lot of times, nobody's fault necessarily, but it may take years and years and years before those regulations are drafted. Uh-huh. And so there's another shade of gray, right? You got a statute, <laughs> you got to take a position in your return because you got to file it. Right. Well, now what do you do? And so you have to just, you know, look at kind of the intent of Congress and a lot of things. And you have to make some choices. Mm-hmm. And then you have to wait to see when the IRS comes out with the regulations, which might be years later, how does that compare mm-hmm. to what it is that you did? Crazy. Yeah. The tax code. I, I always said I would never. There's two places I don't, I would never step into: tax court and patent. quicksand. Oh, well, quicksand sorry. as well. <laughs> yes, uh, into a patent and trademark case. Right. Yeah. Neither one of those. So it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, uh, John. This, thank you. This, this was fun. Great. If you like this episode, please give us a five star review. Follow us. Share the show with your friends and family. And we will see you next time. John's information is in the show notes. Reach out to John. And if you want to be a guest in the podcast, reach out to myself or Brett or our producer, Nelson. Nelson, thank you for this. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you, John. John, this was fun. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. For more information on this show and other resources, 
Visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com. 